Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're going to John chapter 12. We are following the life of Jesus with John. Uh, This is Palm Sunday, where we are reading today. Jesus has come back to Jerusalem. He has come back to the danger zone. Uh, He knows what's going to happen. He knows Passover. Uh, He's the lamb. He understands fully what's going to happen. By coming back, he he is basically coming to allow himself at the right time, to be arrested and crucified. He knows what they will do to him. And what you'll see with Jesus is, as John gives us today, uh, literally, uh, apparently just records the Lord talking to himself, is, is really the way it looks. Uh, obviously, it was loud enough so others heard it. But the Lord is reflecting on, 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 what's, on, on the suffering that's ahead of him. And he's, you, we listen to him deal with Fear. Now, I know that I'm not supposed to say that Jesus was afraid, but he clearly was. And not just once. Jesus knew how to deal with fear. Real fear. We want to talk about that today and learn from him. Because fear is a part of uh, one of the, one really one of the horrible parts of life, isn't it? Uh, There are, uh, I think, mental uh, suffering is worse than physical suffering. Um, I think there's, there's fear and there's depression. And I would categorize them differently. Fear is this, uh, you know, you're, you're worried about what's going to happen. Depression is a hopelessness. Uh, there's just no hope. The hope dies and, and it's, it's a terrible thing. But both of them. So God, the Lord's going to teach us and show us right now. Come Holy Spirit. Lord, we want our ears open. We want our eyes to see. We want soft hearts. Jesus, we're going to walk behind you. We're going to stand and watch you in the temple court. We're going to listen to you. You are our teacher, our rabbi. You are our Lord and risen Savior. And we want to become like you. We don't want to just learn. We want to become like you. We would be your disciples. Uh, Just the time makes no difference. We would have followed you then. We will follow you now. We would live for you then. We will live for you now. And be your disciples in this generation. Come and disciple us, Master. Feed us and strengthen us that we might serve you well. We ask that grace in Jesus' name. And I ask the grace to let us see you. Amen. All right. John 12. I'll start at verse 20. And depending on how I feel, I may go down to verse 38. And I may not. And read it a little later. It's fine. You'll get it one way or another. All right, so there we are. We've ridden into Jerusalem. Um, and there has been the Hosannas. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He came in riding on the foal of a donkey. He has spoken about being a grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies. Uh, that it might not re- remain alone. We talked about that and, and let it apply to ourselves. But then I want to pick up at, at, at verse 20 and see something else he said. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to, the, to worship at the feast, that would be the Passover. 
And these then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life, to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. And then he said this. Now look, look at this statement. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Uh, whatever version you have there, would you read verse 27 out loud? Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. And then he said this, Father, glorify your name. Would you say that? Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were, were saying it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. And now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. And the crowd then answered him, We've heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went and away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. That would be the majority, apparently, of the, of the of religious leaders. But John will say in just a few verses, many of the rulers believed in him. Uh, some were afraid to say so. Uh, but uh, John does not mean no one did, but he's saying majority of this situation didn't. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. And then would you read Isaiah's quote with me? And that'll, we'll finish there. The Lord, Lord ha who has, re I, I can't, I'm, I'm going to try to get it right this time. I apologize. All right, let's try it again. Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Amen. Open the word, Lord. Fear, we're talking about dealing with danger. Fear is very lonely. It seems to place a barrier between us and others and between us and God. Amen. It feels like we've walked into a chamber and closed the door. Have you ever had that feeling? Yeah. 
No matter what, people can be all around you, but that fear grips you and it's like you're there alone. You're just sort of, it's, it's, it, it puts everything into a blur. It's a strange f feature. There alone, trapped with our terrible thoughts, our emotions churn and our, bodies gr our body grows weary. In fact, the suffering that fear brings is often worse than the problem itself. We can suffer through the same event over and over again in our mind long before we actually encounter whatever it is we fear. I wish there were a way we could do away with fear forever. But that blessing awaits the return of Jesus Christ. Until then, you and I live in bodies that are vulnerable to fear. I'm going to say that again. Until then, you and I live in bodies that are vulnerable to fear. Now, you, I say that because you, you can have this picture in your mind that if I were a good Christian, I'd never be afraid. Nonsense. I'm going to show you that Jesus was. It does, that is not the sign of a good Christian. But when God gave us the Holy Spirit, he placed within, inside us a power greater than fear. A power strong enough to bring our rebellious emotions into submission. Here's how the Apostle Paul described that power. Why don't you read that with me? But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal dying bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul is saying something very important there. He has talked about the fact that our bodies, that the sin resides in our bodies, that our bodies are not redeemed yet. As Christians, they aren't. Our spirit is. But our bodies are not. They're still temperamental. They're full of emotions. They're full of all kinds of stuff. Amen? Yeah. That's an important understanding. There's a sense in which you are stuck inside that body. And you've got to cope with the body. It has a mind of its own. So Paul says, all right, that's the situation. But he says, though the, the, the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Okay, so I'm righteous. It's not. But he says, here's, here's what releases you. He says, if this, this, he says, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells inside you. Amen. All right, so the power of the Holy Spirit that took a, the, 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 the corpse of a man who had been just brutally put to death, raised him to full life and exploded him to a new, new state is inside of me. He said, if that power is in you, you can put to death the deeds of the flesh. Amen. You can lay hold of that power, which is greater than the power of your flesh or of the devil. He who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. Amen. Got it? Amen. He's in there. Yes. He's in there. And that's why we, it's so important for us to learn to walk in the spirit and draw on the spirit. That means that the Holy Spirit who lives inside the physical body of every believer is stronger than the forces, impulses, temptations, or attitudes that arrive, arise from that body. This means you and I have been given access to a power greater than fear. And that means you and I are not slaves to fear. We can break its grip and live free of its control. There is no promise in the Bible that says fear will never trouble a believer, but there are many promises that say we can have victory over it when it arrives. Does this make sense? The Apostle John gives us a remarkable gift in the passage we're studying today. He records Jesus talking about how he dealt with the fear of the cross. If Jesus had to deal with fear, then so do we. 
But as we'll see, when fear attacked him, he didn't allow it to control him. He knew how to gain victory over it. So let's listen to him carefully and learn to do what he did. As we noted earlier, Jesus actually made three different visits to the temple during that final week leading up to the cross. The first one, which John is describing, took place on Sunday. On that day, Jesus triumphantly rode into the city, went into the temple, looked around, and then returned to Bethany. Uh, uh, look, you've got to get this clear. If you read the different Gospels, it's confusing because different, the different Gospels pick different days they talk about. And so Mark's talking about one day and Luke talks about another. Uh, Matthew and, and John's talking about uh, this day. Sunday, Jesus rode in for the first time from Bethany into Jerusalem. First time for this visit. The crowds hear he's coming. They pour out of the temple area and the, and the city. They pour out the gates, up the, cross the Kidron, up the side of the Mount of Olives, and meet him as he's coming from Bethany. Some get in front of him, some get behind him, and then they come back with him into the city. He comes into the city and he looks around the temple. What does he find when he gets to the temple? He finds that the sellers of animals and the changers of money that he threw out two years ago are back. The whole ugly business is back, filling the court of the Gentiles. He looks around. He, he has the conversation we're reading today. And then he returns. When it says he hid himself, he went back to Bethany. We told that in another gospel. We know where he went. He went back and stayed in Bethany. Monday, the next day, he gets up and he goes back into the city. On the way, he passes this fig tree that had leaves but no fruit he came up looking for fruit it says remember this looking for fruit and all there are is leaves the thing you have to realize is that a fig tree always puts out fruit with its leaves they come out at the same time i am so right <laughs> I, I, I am i mean first of all i've had fig trees and i have one now um but they about it but you have so when you come to a tree that has all leaves and no figs you've got a defective tree something's wrong here in Israel's thinking, there are three agricultural symbols for Israel. One is the vine, one is the olive, and one is the fig tree. And the fig tree, I told you this the other day, the fig tree is the big tree. Say that, fig tree. So when you have an orchard or something, you've got your vines and you've got your olives and you've got your fig tree, it's the big one that sticks up. And it spoke of the religious leaders, the big tree. So he comes to the big tree. He comes to the symbol of the religious leadership of Israel. And he looks for figs and he only finds leaves. Now, it was pretty early for, for a ripe fig, but there was no figs. That's the deal. So what did he do? He cursed it. And then when they came back the, that evening, the poor thing was just <laughs> from the roots up, dead. Just fried that baby. What is he doing? He is prophetically symbolizing Messiah has come to the big tree. Messiah has looked for spiritual fruit. 
So he now is on his way into the, well, into the temple again. And what does he find? The thing is strewn with sellers and buyers. The thing's been turned into a bazaar. Instead of, instead of the, the place of worship, are people worshiping God? Are, are, are these religious leaders producing fruit for God? Souls that love him, truly born again, truly redeemed through right repentance and faith? They are not. They have failed. There's leaves like crazy, a huge temple, gold all over everything, all of this ornate stuff, lots of leaves, no fruit. So what is he going to do? He's going to ride into the temple, and that day he drives him out again. Get out of here. And we have another stampede of, of uh, <laughs> sheep. You can just imagine. <laughs> and I tell you, Josephus said they'd have as many as 3,500 sheep on that temple mount at one time. Yeah, so we've got, this is a mess. It's cool. So he drives them out again, goes back to Bethany again, and then the next day, Monday, no, Tuesday, he rides in, uh, he comes in, not ride, he walks in uh, on Tuesday, and he has a discussion with the temple leadership. They're angry, they're upset, he's just, he just disturbed everything. And then on the way out, the disciples say, Master, look, look at the temple. Look how beautiful it is. Look at the size of these stones. And he says to them, I'm telling you, not one of those will be left upon another. Got it? Yes. He has just cursed the fig tree. He is now announcing the doom of this structure. Hallelujah. All right. Apparently, while he was still in the temple courtyard, a group of Greek-speaking people came up to Philip and asked him to introduce them to Jesus. They may have chosen Philip because he also spoke Greek. John mentions that Philip was from Bethsaida. Do you see that? You can almost read it as if it's a toss-up. John says, and he was from Bethsaida, by the way, and so was John. So John's grown up with Philip. And, and so he says he was from Bethsaida. And you think, well, nice. We needed to know that, I guess. No, no, which was located a few miles from the Decapolis. When you go with me to Israel, we go to Kersey, and then we drive to Bethsaida, just a couple of miles away. And Kersey's within the Decapolis. The Decapolis is a region controlled by 10 Greek-speaking cities left over from Alexander the Great. So you have all this huge Greek-speaking region right next to, right next door to, to Philippi. I mean to, uh, excuse me, Bethsaida. Philip would have been raised in an environment where the Greek language was common. Even Philip's name is Greek, very Greek. Philip of Macedonia was Alexander the Great's father. So Philip's parents must have been, to some degree, Hellenized Jews. Interestingly, Philip discussed their request with Andrew, who was also from Bethsaida and whose name is also Greek. This group of either Jewish proselytes from a Greek-speaking region or Hellenized Jews may have needed someone to translate for them. I think that's what they're saying. Would you translate it so we could talk to him? Their request for some reason must have been awkward because Philip went to Andrew to discuss what to do. The two men decided to go together to present it to Jesus. He responded by saying that his season of ministering to people the way he had been doing had ended. He said his hour of suffering had already begun. All his attention would now be focused on preparing himself and them for the cross. But even as he spoke these things, the crowd was standing nearby listening. So here come these, these, these Greek-speaking Jews. They're saying basically to Philip and, and, and Andrew, would you, would you introduce us to Jesus? And 
would you interpret for us, is what I, what I would think. Uh, we want to talk to him. We want to see ministry from him. They come and say, we've got these Greek-speaking uh, people want to talk to you. And Jesus says, not now. Not now. He says, that season's done. My hour has come. And, and then he will say, and I am overcome. And I am shaken with, uh, with, with, with grief. So he is emotionally engaged. This thing is hitting him. And he knows what's coming, and, he's, and he's, he struggles with it. Jesus' warning continued. He said, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. He had led a selfless life because he followed the Father's lead. Recall that? He said he, saw the fa- he, he did what he saw the Father do, and he spoke what he heard the Father say. In other words, it's a spirit-led He didn't say things he didn't hear in the spirit. He didn't do things he didn't see in the spirit. He was following all the time, responding to the leading of the father. And in the future, after he was glorified, he would lead his disciples in the same way. They would do what they saw him do. You and I now follow what we see Jesus do and speak what they heard him say. And their obedience to him would be honored by the father. First, in this life, by giving that person his presence as he had his son. And second, by rewarding that person's faithfulness in the age to come. We usually associate the mental anguish Jesus experienced prior to the cross with the Garden of Gethsemane. But this statement reveals that it began days earlier. I suspect it came on and off through his entire ministry. But at some level, the anticipation of the suffering that lay ahead of him accompanied Jesus throughout his ministry. But apparently the the pressure grew as that day drew near. On Sunday of that final week, Jesus said, now my soul has been troubled. And the word troubled uh, means to be shaken or stirred, uh, to tremble. Uh, That word is used when the waters, when the fellow at the pool of Bethesda said, I can't get into the waters when, those, when the angel stirs the waters. In other words, when those waters churn. He says, I can't get in there. That's the word. So Jesus says, my soul is churning. My soul is stirred. Father, what shall I say? Father, save me out of this hour, but for this purpose I came into this hour. Jesus was truly and fully human. So the terror of what lay ahead shook him as it would anyone. His natural desire to live recoiled at the violent death his spirit had obediently chosen. By recording what Jesus said in that moment of reflection, John allows us to hear him deliberate within himself. And we learn that his natural man wanted to live. And the desire to live is no sin. It is a God-given instinct. Do you hear that? It is no sin. God made you that way. He gave you that instinct. He put it in you. His humanity longed to ask the Father to rescue him. And we know from another statement he made in the Garden of Gethsemane that the Father would have done so had he asked. Isn't that amazing? Listen, read this with me. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. He said that after Peter had just sliced off uh, the uh, 
high priest's servant's ear. Remember that? Peter pulled a sword and swap and uh, got the ear. Jesus put it back on. And he says, he says, he says, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. That's what he said. He says, uh, he says, put that thing away. And he says, don't you think that I could ask the father? And at this moment, he would send 12 legions of angels. I'm, I'm doing this by choice. I have waited for them. I'm giving myself to the purpose of the father. I could get out. I could have escaped any time I wanted. Jesus was not a victim. He was a willing sacrifice. Not even the father would force him to endure the cross. He chose to suffer because he saw the purpose. And he said, but all this has, has, has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Those words tell us that he saw himself in the Bible. He knew he was the one the prophet said must die for us before he would be glorified as our great king. So he knew he, what he must do and why. And he used that understanding to silence the fear. Remember, see that? He says, will I ask for this to be relieved? No, I've come for this reason. He's reminding himself why he's going to do what he's going to do. Response. After reminding himself, now what I want to do with this, I want you to see the response. I, I, I debated whether I'd even put this in, but for me, I couldn't really see and understand what he was saying until I saw the whole picture. So I'm just giving you some more picture. After reminding himself of why he must suffer, Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name. I believe he was saying, glorify your name by empowering me to fulfill your purpose for this hour. Which was to become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was to become the suffering servant of Isaiah. And notice I, I, the, the, the scriptures I give you. The suffering servant of Isaiah 49.1 all the way through 53.12. Do you realize all those chapters speak of the suffering Messiah? Years ago, I, I actually did a sermon where I walked you through the entire narrative. And, and, and told you the whole thing. Tells, it's gonna, tells us that he's going to have his beard plucked out. He's going to be spit on. He's gonna, I mean, it just goes on and on in, in, in vivid detail of, of what will be done to him. Now, picture this. When you and I read that, we read, oof, they did that to him. When he read it or when he heard it in the in synagogue, he had undoubtedly memorized it. Clearly, the, the, the synagogue in Nazareth had the scroll of Isaiah. Uh, he is completely conversant in Isaiah. So he's got, it, he's got this by memory. So when he recites this, what is, he, what is he thinking? They're going to do that to me. They will pierce me through. They will crush me. They will tear my beard, spit on me. I will be marred. More than any man, disfigured, is what the word is. They're going to do that. And he's standing there in Gethsemane, or he's standing there right now, and the waves of that just come over him. This is real danger. He's facing real danger. This isn't some made-up thing. He has every reason to be going through the emotions he's going through. And the father answered him by saying, I have both glorified it, and will glorify it again. Meaning I have already glorified my name by sending you into the world to die as a guilt offering. 
I will glorify it again by raising you from the dead and placing you in a position of authority that is high and exalted above all my creation. The father said these things audibly and the entire crowd standing nearby heard his voice. Many reacted with denial. Some pretended to have heard thunder. Others who didn't dare deny that they'd heard distinct words said it must have been an angel. But it was the father's voice answering the son's prayer. And Jesus knew the crowd heard what the voice said. So he said to them, this voice did not come because of me, but because of you. In other words, I didn't need this assurance. You did. And then he went on to say that God was promising them that the judgment that had fallen on the human race because of our sin and the brutal control the devil held over us was about to be broken. Isn't that cool? We'll do more with that, I trust. By his cross, he would make a way of salvation for all humans. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. By using the words lifted up, Jesus indicated that he would die violently. First of all, by being raised up on a, on a, on a stake, by being crucified. But the word lifted up just means uh, executed as well, or can mean it. That, however, was the one truth most of them were not willing to accept. That truth had always been their point of conflict with Jesus. They would gladly welcome him if he would become a king who would rise up and defeat their enemies. But they felt no need for a Messiah who would die for their sins. So they tried to show him how mistaken he was by engaging him in a theological debate about messianic promises. But Jesus refused to be drawn into that argument. He simply warned them that their opportunity to respond to him while he was still there with them in person was nearly at an end. Yet few were willing to believe. So on that Sunday afternoon, he slipped away from the crowd and returned to Bethany. In case any of his readers missed the point, John quotes to us Isaiah's question. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah spoke those words in the middle of his prophecy about the Messiah dying as a guilt offering for the sins of Jews and Gentiles. And as he wrote it, he wondered who would believe it. Do you remember the passage? I'm memorizing it right now. And how well I do, I think I'll open it up here. I, I, I didn't open it up last night. I was just, but I'm going to just, just listen to this. Listen to what Isaiah says, and we'll see how I can do. He says, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And then he says this, just as many were astonished at you, my people. So he was, his, his appearance was marred, disfigured, more than any man, and his form than the sons of man. Did you hear, do you see the contrast? He'll be high and lifted up, and he'll be savage, so you won't even recognize him. Worse than anyone's had done to them. And then he says, he says, uh, the, uh, kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what they had not been told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. He, and then it says, thus he will sprinkle 
many nations. Do you understand the word sprinkle? It, 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 that's a holy word. It's a special word. The word means to take the hyssop, dip it in a bowl of blood, and sprinkle you. So this one, by being marred and disfigured more than any man, will, and he says, he will, he will, thus he will sprinkle many goyim, is the Hebrew. You're a goy if you're not a Jew. It's, in other words, it's, it's a word never used of Israel. It is a word only used of the, um, of the Gentile people. So he will, by this, this savaging, sprinkle as a high priest, putting the atoning blood on the people. He will sprinkle many goyim, the Gentiles. I said, does anyone know who that is? And somebody said, yeah, last night. They said, yeah, me. <laughs> Hallelujah. Aren't you grateful? Amen. Having said that, Isaiah asks, who will believe our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord, the Messiah, been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry, parched ground. He's the, he's the netzer. The, the, the Messiah is the branch, the root that came up out of the ground. Out of what, what's the tree he came, comes out of the root of? David's family, Yeah. He's the, yes, the household of Jesse. He, he's, he comes out of the root, out of the dry, parched ground. He's a, he's a, he's, he comes out over here, not the main trunk of the tree. That got cut down. He comes out of the root. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. And then it says, he was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. Who has believed our report? To whom has the salvation of the Lord been revealed? Who would believe me, says Isaiah, that I told you this? And he says he was despised and we, Israel, we did not esteem him. That's what, that's what John's going after. He said, Isaiah said this. He said, Isaiah said this. And then it says, surely he has borne our sorrows and he has carried our griefs. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. We thought God was punishing him. We thought he'd sinned and God was, God was doing this to him for his sins. But we were so wrong. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the, and the chastisement for our well-being fell upon him. All we, like sheep, gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isn't this beautiful? Hallelujah. So John says, after, after all of this, Here's G this is the very argument, the discussion Jesus is having with them. He's saying, I've got to die for you. And they're going, no, no, Messiah doesn't die. And John says, who Isaiah said, who would believe our report? Let's go back. Three sources of fear. All fear isn't the same. There are different sources of fear. So there are different solutions for dealing with fear, depending on its cause. Jesus' fear arose because of a genuine danger, wouldn't you agree? 
he was about to undergo a shameful and brutal death. But not all the things that cause us fear are genuine. Some of our fears arise from doubt and some from deception. Let's try to understand the difference before we examine how to deal with genuine danger. Doubt. We lack confidence that God can help us. Solution. Repentance and filling our heart with the truth of his word. And stepping out in small steps to discover his faithfulness. Followed by larger steps as we learn to refuse to let doubt control us. You've, you've felt it when the Lord asks you to do a ministry. He says, come on, I want, you to, I want you to do this. I want you to step out. Go call her. Go pray for her. Go do this. What, how do you feel? Frightened. And that fear comes over you because you, you think, I can't do that. And you, begin to, you begin to doubt and worry uh, that the Lord can help you. What do you have to do? You have to, you have to stop that. You have to fill your, your mind with the, with the promises of God. And you step out and you learn he's faithful, right? Amen. Four of us have found that to be true. <laughs> You have to learn faith at this level. And you, do, you learn it by doing. And, you, and, and uh, you know, I've, I said small steps. I, would just, this, I didn't say this last night, but it just occurred to me. If, if, you, if you will, I'll tell you. What, you say, what are small steps? How do you learn faith by small steps? Well, I'll tell you a good one. Tithing. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. We don't tithe because we're afraid I'll run out of money. But what is it you're trusting? That if I give the Lord this, this, this amount, that he will provide for me and I will not be short. Doesn't it say that? Well, how are you going to learn that? By doing it. I'll tell you another one, Sabbath keeping. By that, I mean resting a day before the Lord and, and, and worshiping him, not working, not, do, not, not laboring for your income uh, on that day. That takes real faith. You are now giving a whole day. You're wasting it when you could be doing so much productive. And what are you doing? You're worshiping the Lord and fellowshipping with him. And he says, you give me that day, I'll make you right on the heights. Well, let's try it. Let's see if it works. That's how you learn faith. And what you'll find is as you, are, as you give faithfulness to the Lord, he provides for you abundantly. As you, as you take that day and you rest before him, he, he, he takes and stretches those six days and more is accomplished in that week than, than normal weeks. But you took a whole day and rested and you were with your family and, and, and just rejoicing in the Lord. That's crazy. But it works. It's how you learn faith. You start learning this kind of faith that way. Deception. In this case, we are afraid of something that's not really there. We've come to a false conclusion on our own or believe a lie that's been told to us. Solution. Ask God to show us the truth and then refuse to let the lie return. By focusing our thoughts on Jesus every time the fear tries to return. Uh, simple examples. You, sometimes what we're afraid of doesn't exist. I can remember a time when I was, I was, I was teaching at the Bible college. And for some reason I got this big lump on my arm. Well, I was, you know, with, with all my medical background, I, I was immediately convinced I had cancer. I mean, we, that was what that must be. And I can laugh at it now. But the fear swept over me. Come on. And I, I had times when I'm lying in on the bed. I mean, virtually, all you need to do is put a bouquet of flowers on my chest. <laughs> it, it was, it was, it, it's funny now. 
But I mean, for all the world, I was convinced I'm out of here. I got a family, I got children. Oh my goodness. Oh, you know, I'm afraid of something that doesn't exist. This is deception. I am deceived. Uh, I'll tell you another one that the devil constantly uses. He's the accuser of the brethren. And so he plants into our minds, you know, they don't like me. Uh, they hate me. They're talking about me. I'm just sure they are. And you get this thing going in your brain and you're afraid and you get a whole scenario and you talk to people and you build up an entire, an entire world uh, is built around this, this thing the devil has planted in the heart and separated you by fear. It's a lie, it's a deception, and it's quite effective. And I think we all have to fight with that stuff. So deception is another one. But, but there is also real danger. There are genuine dangers, and God has given us a natural reaction that triggers the strength we need to flee or defend ourselves. Here, this is a good form of fear and may keep us alive at a moment of crisis. But there are occasions when God will ask us to face a genuine danger and ignore our fear. Those moments often come when he needs us to rescue others. And that's the choice Jesus made over and over again throughout his ministry. Do you see it? Uh, what, what happened at 9-11? At, uh, at, at there was a whole bunch of people who ran into the building. Don't tell me their bodies weren't going, you idiot. Don't go in there. Nobody wanted to. They overcame it and did it anyway. They saw the purpose. And that's, well, they, they, they said, I've got to. And so they went into the thing. How many times do, do people in our community run into the problem when everything in their instinct says run away? You see? Dealing with danger. When genuine danger is present, fear will tend to reemerge. We deal with it. We find peace. And then the fear comes back. And we have to deal with it again. It did even for Jesus. That's what I want to show you. John lets us hear him pray on the Sunday afternoon of that final week. But by late Thursday evening or early Friday morning, Jesus endured an even more severe attack of anxiety while waiting for Judas to betray him. On both occasions, he dealt with fear in the same two ways. And found victory over it. Let me stop for a second. Do you see what I'm saying? We've just heard him say, my soul is stirred. It is trembling. It is shaken uh, over my hour is here on Sunday afternoon. Thursday, somewhere around midnight, one o'clock. Thursday, late Thursday, early Friday morning. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane waiting for Judas to bring the thugs uh, who are going to arrest him uh, from the temple area. He goes into a severe anxiety attack. That's what it is. He's, 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 sweat is pouring off of him like, like blood, says one. Uh, it's, it's just pouring off. He's on the ground. He's asked three of his friends uh, to pray for him. They have fallen asleep. Now that, he's not, this isn't an hour of, a sweet hour of prayer. This, this is, I'm dying. Would you please Pray for me. And so he goes, lies on the ground and is just in agony and asking them to cover him while he's on the ground. And they go to sleep. This is really something. And thankfully, the father sends an angel and ministers to him in the middle of this agony. Let's call it what it is. Let's look at it honestly. Our Lord was dealing with severe attacks of fear. It's not sin at all. 
It's how real a human he is. He's as human as you and I are. He became one of us, and his body's screaming inside him. Let's discover what he did in those moments. I said there's two ways he found victory. Let's discover what he did so we can deal with our fears in the face of genuine danger the same way. Number one, purpose. Would you say purpose? He reminded himself of why he had to go through the danger rather than run away from it. He said it was necessary for him to accomplish God's will. Let's hear it again. Read this with me. What shall I say? Father, save me out of this hour. But for this purpose, I came into this hour. That's literal. No, Jesus would not ask to be rescued because the cross was the very reason God had sent him into the world. He would choose obedience and trust God's promise to raise him from the dead. And he would make that same decision days later in Gethsemane when the fear arose again. Listen, read this with me. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Second word is presence. Would you say presence? presence. Determined to face what lay ahead, Jesus immediately turned and spoke to the Father. He called on the Father to glorify his name. And the father answered in a voice from heaven. In Gethsemane, the father sent an angel to strengthen him. Each time, Jesus turned his thoughts away from the danger and concentrated on the invisible, but very real presence of God. Setting the mind. Jesus shows us that whenever we are attacked by fear, we can turn our thoughts to God. Paul calls that action setting the mind on the things of the spirit. He says we have a choice. He says we can either focus our attention on the mind of the flesh, which is where the fear is coming from, or we can focus on the mind of the spirit, which is assuring us that God is with us and will protect us, even if we must pass through the valley of the shadow of death. Paul says that by doing that, we can put to death the deeds of the body, which certainly includes fear. Do you understand? Two words. What were they? First of all, he reminded himself of the purpose. He said, I need to do this. I need to do this. There's a reason I must do this. He, he recall, he put it in perspective. This needs to be done. And second of all, he immediately turned father and he turned to his awareness of the Lord's presence right with him. Paul calls that setting the mind. He says, there's one thing you and I can do. I can't stop some of this, but I can control what I think. Amen. Yes, you can. You say, no, I can't. Yes, you can. No, I can't. Yes, you can. <laughs> yes, you can. You can. I, I, I mean, if I can do it, you can do it. <laughs> it is, it, but it, it's an art. It's something you learn to do. You learn to stop listening to this thing, and you turn your thought, and you look at Jesus. You don't argue with it. See, that's the thing we get confused on. You don't argue with going, I won't think that, I won't think that. We all know, you know, don't think pink elephants and then that's all you can think. You know? don't, don't. So if it's, if it's not a matter of mind science kind of thing, where I'm going to stop thinking about this, uh, that, you're just toast if you try that approach. It'll win every time. You don't do that. You flee to Christ. Did you see that? You flee, your mind flees, and you look at him, and you behold Christ. 
and you look at him and you and you, and you so you 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 let your attention set on him and on his presence and you hold it and this lets go temptation does fear does all of that stuff it's 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 an extremely important lesson fight the fear the greatest obstacle that prevents us from receiving god's help is fear once the fear is gone faith can arise our spiritual ears can open up and we can hear God's voice and receive his guidance. We come out of that lonely chamber. Our peaceful mind is again able to pray boldly. And in many cases, that's when the miraculous turn begins to happen. And even if we still have to engage the thing we feared, we do so now not as victims, but as children of God. Confident that our father has our circumstances firmly in his hands. It was not too long ago I was talking with a man who came to me and he, he told me that he had been diagnosed with a, with a very severe stage of cancer. And I was praying for him and it just came out of my mouth. It's one of those things. But I, 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 I heard myself say it. I said, fight the fear, not the cancer. Fight the fear, not the cancer. Once the fear's gone, you can hear. Once the fear's gone, you can pray differently. Once the fear's out of the picture, you can now engage with the Lord. But as long as that fear is there, you freeze. The mind is frozen. The faith is frozen. You're a mess. You don't feel close to God. You don't feel close to anybody. The fear is, what you, is, is our enemy. It's the thing that's gripping us in the midst of this thing. And it's got to go. And when it's gone, you're a different person. And the communication is there. The openness is there. We've talked about different kinds of fear, we can, basis for it. You can say there's, there's doubt and you just need to, you need to learn the word and stand on truth and find out God's faithful. We said there's deception. Those things are, are false. They're just, you need truth. But there's genuine things to be afraid of. And I, I went through uh, hip surgery. I had a hip replacement. And uh, I have read enough or heard enough to know that uh, this was going to be carpentry. And uh, they were going to use power tools, and, they, and I was going to be the subject of it all. And uh, I, you know, you can run that kind of scenario through in your mind, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, don't, don't tell me I'm not facing something worth being afraid of, you know? And uh, what I had done, you know, I, 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 I I had to do this, and I, and I, and I knew it. I, I mean, I've been prayed for for 10 years, and I, and, I, and I believe in healing. But in this case, I really felt the Lord said, no, you're supposed to do this. I had actually fallen uh, doing a mission project years ago in Africa, and I went right through the roof. The Lord told me, get the ladder twice, and I refused to do it. And I took a shortcut and fell eight feet straight down and landed on that leg. And uh, yeah, anyway, so when they x-rayed me, you kind of knew something was coming. Uh, they x-rayed me and the guy, and I'm lying there and the, you hear this. And then the guy behind the screen goes, oh, yeah, he says, you're going to feel a lot better. <laughs> what? And I saw my hip bone or the top of that femur was as flat as the top of my hand there. It's where I had. Yeah, so I went went ten years with that sucker, you know, um, and and so anyway, I have I know the purpose, and my purpose was I choose life. I got I want to stay active. 
I don't want to withdraw. I want to serve the Lord as long as I can. I've sought for healing. The Lord wants me well. I know that. And so I, and I'm going to just allow him to heal me through medicine, which he has, and I feel, feel wonderful. Uh, so I took that step. But boy, I'll tell you, going into surgery is an interesting experience, isn't it? Uh, you, you know, you go through all of this kind of thing. And what did I do in those moments? I, yes, I, I was aware of the purpose, and I turned my mind to the presence. And so as I go into all of this, as they're rolling me in the whole thing, I'm thinking, Lord, you're my doctor. I'm with you. I trust you. I look to you. Be with me now. And I just focused on him. And then when I, even when I came to, I came to and I said, Lord, you're with me. You just, you just immerse yourself into the presence of God. That's how you go through this. And I mentioned there, even if you and I, I said even, if the Lord doesn't tarry, I mean, if the Lord tarries and he doesn't come back, everyone in this room, you and I are all going to go through the valley of the shadow of death. You're going to die. And this skill will carry you through that. This is how you die. You, Lord, what is the purpose? I'm coming to you. I have eternal life in front of me. You have, I, I'm, step, I'm dropping this body and I'm getting a new one. Amen. Blessed be God. And Lord Jesus, I just look at you and hang on to you. That's how you die. This is how we do it. And we're going to have to all face it. This is how we do that. It's how we deal with fear. Responding to fear. We have to respond. How we respond to fear depends on why we're afraid. If it's because we're full of doubt, then our solution is to repent and fill our hearts with the truth of God's word. If we've been deceived and are afraid of something that doesn't really exist, then our solution is to ask God to show us the truth. But if the danger we face is genuine, then we can follow the example of our Lord who reminded himself of why he had to suffer and then set his mind on the presence of the Father. We can do the same. And when we do... The fear will leave us, at least for a while. And if it returns, we will again remember God's purpose and return to his presence. And we will find his victory over fear as many times as we need it. Until the day comes when he wipes away every tear. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.